You're listening to the Voices Behind Women's Cricket Chat. That's Hannah, Georgie, Cassie, Mahika and Alex. Coming up on today's podcast... Hello and welcome to this episode of Women's Cricket with me, Georgie and Alex. And I am so chuffed to say that we are joined today by the one, the only, the proper legend, all the way from down under in Australia, the founder of Fairbreak, the father of Fairbreak, Sean Martin. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Alex. Lovely to to be here. And um, that's probably the most outstanding uh, intro I've ever had. Thank you. You know what? I'm going to take that. Alex, don't you dare clip that out of the podcast because I'm taking that praise and we're keeping it in here. So, Sean, <laughs> I think with something like you and Fairbreak, I think the only place we can start is kind of at the beginning, which some people might not realise is quite a lot longer ago than just the Fairbreak Invitational Tournament 2022. So when it all started, way back when, you started the standalone Women's International Cricket League, which is now sort of metamorphosed into Fairbreak as we know it. So how did this original idea start and what prompted you to get going and kick it all off? Well, thanks, Georgie, and and thanks for having me on the podcast. It, It actually goes back a little bit before WICL, when I got introduced to to Lisa Stalaker because I was I was looking for a speaker for a, a corporate event and I was also running some corporate cricket matches around Australia for Cisco and I was using ex test players mingled in with uh, the corporates for these games and after meeting Lisa and finding out a little bit about what was going on with women's cricket. I started using Lisa and Alex Blackwell and Kate Blackwell and Charles Danneveld, a few of the Australian female players in these corporate matches because they were, not only were they exceptional players, but it was an opportunity to showcase their talent to uh, in a corporate setting. And we were also able to pay them because what I found out was that they basically earned nothing for what they were doing. So we were able to, to, to pay them before there was any notion of contracts or anything like that. So that led into me um, taking on a management role with Lisa in trying to uh, secure sponsors and improve that whole situation, which, you know, once I found out more, um, you know, it suddenly became more work to do. And that that led to the, the Women's World Cup in 2013. I wrote Lisa's book with her, which we launched in Mumbai in 2012. She retired in, in uh, Mumbai in 2013 as the highest played female cricketer in the world at that stage on $15,000 a year, which included 15 public appearances. And what we'd been doing in the lead up to that is had been monitoring the the rise in the quality of the play in the women's game and also the viewer numbers around the world. And that prompted us to launch WICL, um, which was really just an attempt to do what, what we did in Dubai. Now, that really hadn't changed from, from that point to what we did in Dubai, which was to have a global T20 tournament to showcase the quality of play around the world and also to provide a platform where the players could start to get paid better than what they were. You know, we, we needed to try and address this, this level of inequality. And so that was really the the way things started. And, and we, we were pretty naive, to tell you the truth. You know, I came to England, met with Claire Connor, you know, was told it would be a game changer for women's cricket. And, and then we thought, well, this is great. You know, people will support what we're doing and understand that we're just trying to provide another level of opportunity. It didn't work out like that. It really, people saw us as a threat or a, a rivals or rebel leagues or competitive or, you know, whatever whatever brand or, or, or tag you want to put on it. 
that wasn't the case at all. Uh, but it became very difficult then to get to the point uh, that we're at now. So it then became a matter of okay, how do we how do we do this? How do we get sanctioned? How do we become you know not disapproved cricket? We didn't want to um, sort of go and try and start something without approval and, and sort of blow up everything that we'd been trying to do. We didn't think that was going to be very productive. So it became very frustrating, and <clears throat> eventually um, we ran a an exhi- well, exhibition training exercise in in Auckland for South Pacific Island and, and South Asian players, which was very successful, but again was viewed as, you know, what are you trying to do? And um, after that, Lisa had to make a decision about whether she'd stay with WICL or whether she'd pursue a full-time commentary career. And, and the feeling was that, or her feeling, and I supported it completely and understood it, was that while ever we were being perceived as, you know, disapproved or, or potentially a, a rebel organisation that would limit her opportunities for commentary. So she left the business. I took it over completely. I started to film a little documentary around that piece we did in Auckland and I called the documentary Fair Break. It's the only smart thing I've ever done. So then I subsequently moved the branding from WICL um, to Fair Break. And it was really a play on the notion of uh, fair go in Australia because the more work we were doing, the more it became around a lack of opportunity, you know, it's still the equality piece and also the diversity and inclusion aspects. So that messaging has never really changed from that point on. And then it became a matter of could I find a board that would support what we were doing? So we were sort of ping-ponged a bit between the ICC and the board. The boards would say you need to get ICC approval. The ICC would say you need to get a board to back you. And we went backwards and forwards. Well, that that just got very frustrating. And then the decision was made, well, let's start playing really, and that that culminated in the invitation to play at Wormsley uh, against the very first ever Sir Paul Getty Women's Eleven in 2018. So we really put a, a fair break 11 on the field, which is was an exemplar of what you saw in, in, in Dubai. And then we've been going back there every year. And so, so as fair break teams started to play, it then became a little bit easier to have a discussion with, with the board. And then I was lucky enough to meet Venkat, Mr Venkatesh, who was involved with uh, the board at, at uh, Hong Kong Cricket, Cricket Hong Kong. Uh, and then that led to that relationship where they saw the value in working with women's cricket, especially in Asia, where it's the fastest growing female sport um, in that part of the world. And so they became the board that we partnered with. And then uh, that that culminated in what what you were a part of in Dubai, really. So that's the that's the short story, I suppose, of um, from inception to the point we're at now. Just before we get on to Dubai and all of that, because that's what our listeners know about the most, how much did it mean to sort of be able to bring those players through? Because you've had the, the sponsorship program as well, haven't you? So what did it mean to you to be able to see these sort of South Pacific players actually get a chance to play at places like Wormsley in the likes of, you know, the Blackwell Mere Cup? You've got two legends of the game, you know, Blackwell and mirror in a cup yeah. in a t20 and something like that must have been really exciting for you players from over 10 countries which then later on expanded to over 35 countries yeah oh look it was the, the first uh the first team that played at wormsley was was outstanding i mean susie bates captained that team she's been a huge supporter of us from day one um i think you're talking a little bit about players like selena solomon from vanuatu who you know for the first time in her life caught a taxi and uh, was the player of the match in that game against a team led by Charlotte Edwards of you know nearly all internationals. Again, it was a case of 
uh, and, and as you've seen, Georgia, you're well aware of how good lots of these players from associate nations are. They're as good as anyone playing anywhere in the world. You just don't get to see them. So this was our chance to really give them an opportunity to be seen. So it's very satisfying when not only do they come together, but then they perform very, very well. And the skill sets are very high um, amongst all of the players that we invite. Uh, the thing that they lack is is game awareness, and that's just purely because they don't play enough. But but you've also seen it doesn't take very long for that to 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 change. And when you have players of the calibre of Susie and Sanamir and Alex Blackwell around them, those players are very very giving players. They're very uh, supportive. They they work with the players very enthusiastically about about bringing their skill sets up. And it, it's a very collaborative piece. I mean, an interesting little sideline is the second year, 2019, when we played at Wormsley, Sana captained that team. Alex played again. But Susie Bates was, was training in England and, and wasn't able to play. But she rang me and said, oh, Sean, can I come to the game? And I said, Susie, of course you can. You know, you're a fair breaker. So not only did she come to the game, she did throwdowns with Sana Mir and then she ran the water for the team. So that's the sort of atmosphere that exists around, around what we do. Uh, so it's, it's really satisfying to see these players from Botswana and you know, Vanuatu and you know, Singapore, or Hong Kong, Rwanda, wherever they might be, uh, get the opportunity to, to play uh, and learn from these other players. The more important aspect, actually, way beyond the cricket, is they now are in touch with each other. So from a social impact perspective and from a mentoring perspective, and I don't mean about cricket, I just mean about life. These women from small villages and, you know, areas where they don't have access to many of the facilities that a, a Susie or an Alex or a Sana might have, they're now in a WhatsApp group with them. They can now speak to them. They, uh, they're not only fellow players, their colleagues now. So it's, I'm more pleased about the social impact piece than I am about the cricket. I think that's the strength of what we do. And cricket's the vehicle for that. And I think you mentioned in countries like Botswana and countries like that, where perhaps cricket isn't as big a thing as it is in, say, you know, your big countries like England and Australia. And I think that's what's so great about something like Fairbrick. You're bringing cricket to countries and areas where perhaps they wouldn't actually see it. Yeah, I think there's an element of truth in that, Alex. But I also think there is a little bit of a misconception here that that where men's cricket is played is is where the where women the women's game is and and where the audience is and we believe that the two games are very different and the audiences are very different and the uptake of the game is very different around the world um, so you know Nepal's a very good example of that about the following that their women's team has there you know the Thai players would would be exactly the same so it's really uh, about also a matter of educating even a, a experienced cricket audience sometimes around just where the women's game is strong and where where the opportunities lie. But certainly I think what happens when you've got a player, say, like Shamila Moswayu from Botswana, she goes back to Botswana and, look, if you can't see it, you can't be it, and, you know, to, to use that old cliché. Well, you know, young female players in Botswana or in Vanuatu or wherever it might be can now look at the Selena Solomon or a Shamila Moswayu and go, well, hang on a second, I can do that. Now, that, that to me is, that's the big story. 
And so you mentioned all these different players from different countries, and we saw them at the inaugural fair break in Dubai this year. In Dubai, not Hong Kong, due to all the situations going on in the world at the moment. Alex and I were wondering, how do you even go about starting to bring together something like fair break? You know, you've got players from literally every corner of the globe under flags that I have now learned from seeing them on fair break shirts because I'm not good at my flags, learned that one. How do you even start to put that together and be like, yeah, right, we're bringing all these together. We've got six teams, players from 35 countries, and we're going to play at an international stadium. What's step one and how do you do it from there? Well, I think step one goes back a number of years. It's not like you just don't sit down day one with a piece of paper and go, let's do this. We'd been collecting intelligence on players around the world for a long time. We have a, a, a panel, Jeff Lawson, myself, Alex Blackwell and Sana Mir, that manage those lists of players. And then between the four of us, we're heavily connected to coaches and, and cricket programs in all parts of the world. So it is a long process and we watched a lot of video. We talked to a lot of people. We read a lot of submissions from players. And, that, and that's really the process. And, and we meet basically uh, every week or every fortnight, the four of us, and we go through players, we go through nominations, we go through lists. And what we try to do there is manage a list per team. I'm very much opposed to the notion of auctions. I don't think you can, you should, anyone should be auctioning a human in any way, shape or form, be it male or female. I'm very much opposed to that. I think you invite someone, you offer them a contract and they either accept or they don't. I think that's a, a professional, courteous, respectful way to deal with a person. And I won't change from that view with at all. So we manage uh, the lists of players and then we try and look at skill sets and we try and look at the balance between the full member nation players and the associate nation players so that we've got the right combinations and the right mix. And it's an invitational tournament. So you're invited. Some players for Hong Kong have been retained. Some have not. But you're never dropped. It's not, there's no notion of that. So, you, you know, once you've been invited, you're always available to be invited again. So that's really the spirit in which we do it. Uh, but we do have a lot of help from a lot of people around the world. And honestly... We've had to stop our expression of interest document on our website because we could feel that many teams at the moment. It's not, it's ridiculous with the people, number of people who want to play, which is incredibly flattering, but it's also quite challenging for me because I would like to give all of those people an opportunity. I just can't do it at the moment. So yeah, it's a, it's an involved process, Georgie, but it's, it's, it's very, it's a very considered process. And you can imagine with, you know, the, the calibre of the people, Jeff, you know, Alex and Sana, you know, there's a, they're very committed to getting the mix right. And you just mentioned there about the interest from players and, you know, you don't quite have enough spots to fill per se for everyone. Do you think there will come a time in fair break where you do expand it so, it's, so there are more teams on offer and on display? So, Alex, yes. I, when we first uh, came up with this concept, well, right back in the WICL days, the concept really hasn't changed. The notion was always to expand from six teams. It's just a matter of when we would do that and how we would do that. So I think, you know, when we started back then, the notion was to move to eight teams and then eventually 10 teams. But 
again, that makes the tournament longer. So I've got to, we've got to get this balance right between the length of time and the number of teams. And in speaking to all of the female players we work with, and that's one thing we do and we've done right from the word go, we always talk to the players. We always seek advice from them. What do they want? You know, how do they like to play? What do they want to wear? All of these things, you know, are, are considered. Um, and, and we know for a fact that as female players, they want to play shorter form tournament, tournaments. That was the whole notion around creating a Grand Slam type event. You know, one city, one venue, 20 games, two weeks. You know, you can bring your family, you can bring your partner, you can play, you know, the best cricket in the world, but you're not being asked to be away for six or eight weeks. And they, that way we can pay people what we think is a fair fee for the time that they're away. I just wanted to catch on a tiny bit there that you said want to wear, you know, so they can wear what they want to. And I've discussed this with you before, but it's something that's really in the awareness at the moment in sport all across the world. The idea of what women want to wear to play. Wimbledon have changed their rules to allow dark shorts. We see it in uh, we're seeing it in the WSL and the football now women are allowed to wear dark shorts. And that's something that you've mentioned to me before regarding female cricketers wanting to wear dark trousers for understandable reasons you get your period and it's the last stress that you need when you're playing cricket and that's something that Fairbreak has been so aware of women's health for such a long time that could you just talk us through where that came about from and how you know it just it seems so natural but Fairbreak have had it for the whole time and it's this massive news thing at the moment but you're like you know what we've always been doing this. Yeah, we always did it from the very first time we put a team a Fairbreak team on the field back in 2000 even before that uh, just in training, uh, 2018. Well, just talk to the players. It's not rocket science, you know. I'm not some sort of, you know, health genius. It's just ask the players, talk to them, um, talk to the women around you in your life, and you know, educate yourself around um, what's best for the player. It's really, Georgie. That I, I don't mean to try and oversimplify it, but it really is that simple. I Women's- totally agree. It's it's. I don't understand why. It seems such an illogical thing, but I just love that you've had it for so long. Well, I think a lot of the time in sport, decisions are made for players, not with players. Um, And what we like to do is try as much as possible. I mean, you can't do it all the time, but as much as possible, try and make decisions with consultation with the players. And that's why we've got people like Sana from her part of the world, you know, as part of our management team, Mignon Dupre, you know, we, we've got people from all around the world that we seek opinions from. We, we don't just make a, a decision, a unilateral decision, sitting, you know, sitting at home here going, well, let's do that. Um, there's a lot of consultation that goes on around the decisions that we make. So we discussed the history a bit of Fairbreak there, but I want to bring it back to Fairbreak FBI 22 or whatever you feel like calling it. Give it a hashtag, whatever. And it was just groundbreaking. It sort of started out... Maybe like when I said I was going, people were a bit like, oh, so, you know, what is it? I don't really know that. Where can I see it? This, that and the other. But I think once it started and hit the ground running, it was just, it was everywhere. It was so well received by places all over. I was having people from Wisden asking if I talk about it. TalkSport, all different, you know, outlets were suddenly like, you know what? This actually is showcasing women's cricket on a level we've not seen. For you, what was it like to be able to see sort of, your baby come to life on that global stage. You know, we were standing in that massive cricket stadium on day one and you saw that first ball bowled and you're like, you know what, 
it's all come together. What was that like for you? Well, there was a quite a few emotions running around at that time, but I think the main one was that I wasn't surprised if if that if I could say that. I mean, what was happening on the ground was exactly how I'd always imagined it. You know, I'd been living that in my head for 10 years or more. So it really wasn't a surprise to me. I suppose the there was a sense of relief that we'd actually been able to move everything from Hong Kong to Dubai and we'd had, you know, an incredible number of problems leading into that that opening game, you know, that were not of our own making, but we we um, overcame all of those. And I was I was most pleased for everyone that had been a part of the whole experience for for such a long time. I mean, there's a lot of people that have been invested in this uh, apart from myself. Um, so I was very pleased for them and I was very pleased for the players. And in general, I was I wanted the, the cricket to be really good and it was and that was very important to me. And then what I was incredibly pleased about was all of the associate things that went on, excuse me, around the cricket, um, the commentators that we had in place, people like yourself, Georgie, and, and others that we'd given opportunity to who were now just doing a fabulous job. Um, so there wasn't just what was going on on the field that I was pleased with. It was the the whole box and dice of everything that was coming together really well. Uh, can we just possibly, this sounds really awful, log out of this and log back into the same link because I can't afford Zoom Premium. So we only have sure. four minutes. So we log out this one, we'll come back in and we'll just keep going on this. Right on. Okay. Um, yeah, so we were just talking there about, you know, not just the players and the game and celebrating that. It's the people around that and the opportunities provided there. So if we continue looking at FBI 22 or FBI 22, whatever, whatever you're yeah. going for on the hashtag fronts, what would you say was, uh, it's probably very difficult to pick a sort of a standout moment or a moment you got to sit down and reflect and like, we've actually done this look what we've done for this player, that person, this country, this movement. Do you have a standout moment or is it just as a whole? Because I can, that's probably very hard to pick one. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't isolate one, um, Georgie. That would be almost impossible. There's a few things that were significant. I mean, Katie Martin coming up and saying that it was important for her to retire um, at that tournament rather than back in New Zealand. I think that was... That was a moment that caught me completely off guard. Uh, Stara Callis wanting to come and stand with me for the first ball because she'd been a part of the journey of getting there. Those things were important. The number of uh, Associate Nation players that won Player of the Match awards, I thought was, I wasn't surprised, but certainly the performances were fantastic from, from a number of those players. I think seeing... Uh, the way, you know, yourself and Claudia Lamb and Anusha Ghosh and Roshni and Eba Qureshi worked together as a, as a group was, I thought was wonderful. I, I, I loved the, the way that worked. And then giving, I'm a great believer in giving people opportunity. If you give them opportunity, even if they don't really understand why you're doing it or why you could be so stupid to do it, um, they then suddenly surprise you and no well they don't surprise you but they surprise themselves and then they go way past what they ever expected so giving people the opportunity to do a pitch report for example 
Isabel Duncan doing a pitch report who'd never done one before and then did an amazing job giving the players an opportunity to do a pitch report. They're going to play on the thing. So why don't you get them to do a pitch report? So all of those little things that we did, one of the most pleasing things for me was getting seeing the flags on the, on the players. So I went from being a complete lunatic to a genius in 24 hours. Uh, when I took the the numbers, the numbers on cricket shirts mean nothing to me. I only re- I remember Route 66. That's it. That's the only one I remember anywhere in the world because they don't apply to a position. It's it's just meaningless to me. So what I was very conscious of was I wanted to show the diversity in the game. I wanted people to understand just how big this game is, how broad it is, and how many people it touches. How can you do that? We'll put the flags on the shirts. So I wanted people to know the name of the player and I wanted them to know where they came from. That was incredibly important to me. So that that is now our signature thing. That, that will be, you know, forevermore, that's what will happen. And, okay, for yourself, it was a geography lesson. Fantastic. But for lots of people around the world, it was the same thing. They're going, what's that flag? What, do they play cricket there, do they? But then also the country that that player was representing, suddenly that became their player. So it was very important from an identification piece back home that oh, there's my player. So it it served multiple purposes. Uh, and it also, I think, with the players themselves in the team, they could look at the flags of the other people in their team and go, holy moly, you know, there's 13 different nationalities in my team. You know, so again, it, it was... All of those experiences, I think, you know, having to deal with, and it was a challenge for the coaches, which is what we wanted. We wanted, you know, to see what reaction we were going to get out of the coaches as well, because suddenly they were thrown into an environment that they'd never experienced before. So, in turn, like, I go on for about highlights. <laughs> How long have we got? A couple of days. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so many things like that that are just look. The other thing that was really interesting for me was to see. Players from test-playing nations, full-member board nations, having to go back and play like they started playing. So those players get so much information on opposition. They get batting charts, bowling charts. They get to watch video. You know, they've got that much an analysis on their opposition. It's not funny. Suddenly, they're facing Henrietta Ishimwe from Rwanda, and they're going, what does she bowl? I've got no idea. So, you know, I, I think Nicola Carey's still trying to work out where that ball went to Boulder. So they've suddenly got to play the game that's in front of them rather than playing what they're being told to play. So it, it, it gave a lot of the players a lot of freedom to express themselves. And I think that's, that's a really great thing when you're a player. And I think we saw that in a lot of like the post-match press conferences and things like that. You could, you know, there was beforehand, there was perhaps you would think, oh, the associate players are going to learn loads from the test playing nations. That was kind of a given that's just how it works when they've had that much experience. But actually, it was a sort of symbiotic relationship because they were working, they were learning, but then actually these test playing nations were going, you know what? They're doing that. And actually that really works. And so it, they were everyone was learning something from someone else. It wasn't just, you know, the, yeah. the big sponsored, big playing nations teaching these associate nations. And everyone held their own on a different level in these games. It, you never went, oh, that's a full nation person, they've bowled an associate. It wasn't like that at all, was it? No, not not at all. And a funny thing happens. Um, I said earlier on, when you bring these teams together, you find some of the Associate Nation players highly skilled but lacking game awareness. They pick that up very, very quickly. 
So what happens is their level of play lifts. And then what happens with the full member players is something really interesting. And I won't name the player, but one very, very, very high profile international player came up to me and said, Sean, I've got performance anxiety here. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, all of these associate nation players are playing really well and they're all looking at me going, well, you're, you're supposed to be pretty special, so you better do something. So she said, I've got performance anxiety, right? And she said, I haven't felt like that for a long, long time. So what happens again is that those more established or more established players from the, from the test playing nations, their game lifts. So everyone's standard lifts. And that's a really interesting phenomenon, I think. So that's why you saw the high quality cricket that you saw. So there's an expectation that's that's raised amongst all of the players. Yeah, and you talked about that high quality cricket and it really was a spectacular event. It really had that X factor value. So much so that I think, you know, it kind of made the BCCI stand up and realise that, oh, maybe it is time for a women's IPL. So you kind of helped push them in the right direction, so to speak. Well, if, if we've done anything over the years, I think initially when we first started, we a lot's been written about us pushing Cricket Australia to start the WBBL and the ECB to, to start the Kia Super League. And I've never said that, but other journalists and, and commentators have said that. Look, if we've helped to generate more opportunity for domestic leagues around the world, then I'm really pleased about that. I think the more that that happens, the, the, the better. If we've had a small part in in helping that move ahead, then fantastic. That's one of the one of the things we want to see. And the more the more that happens, the better. Our our positioning is what it is. You know, we're the standalone global tournament, and that's where I see we provide the best value for the game and for the development of the game. And that seems quite a nice way to round up things at Fair Break Twenty Two. We're now looking ahead to the future. What have you been up to since we all got back from Dubai? Because you've been all over the place. I see you've just been in Hong Kong looking at next year's tournament. So what have you been up to and what are we looking at as we're moving forward into the new year? We're recording this. What's the date today? Today is the what 15th of December, is it? Well, 15th where you are, 16th where I am. Yeah, no, 16th. So I've just woken up on the 16th of December. So coming to the end of 2022, what is the plan going forward and what have you been up to since Fairbreak Tour finished this year? Really nothing has slowed down uh, at all. We haven't really stopped. So we've uh, we've finished writing in the Fairbreak book. Um, I gave an opportunity to a a woman by the name of Karen Modica who had been writing fantastic pieces for us and I found out that she'd always harboured this desire to write a book so I said Karen go and write the fair break book for us Um, we need to have a record of things that have happened before I drop off the twig so that um, people can understand what the, the the journey's been and she's done an absolutely amazing job so again this is one of the things that I spoke about Georgie where you realize that a person wants an opportunity you give them that opportunity then they go way past what you ever expected so that book is just about to go off to the printers on monday so it'll be launched in canberra on the 4th of february where a fair break team plays four matches during the week leading up to that against the act medias and we've brought the team well we're bringing a team to australia from 11 different countries some players who have played in Dubai and for fair break before and some players that have never played for us before. So again, 
keeping the same concept going. The book is not a, certainly not about me. It's about all the people that have been intrinsically involved in in what's gone on um, from the start. So it's a series of interviews, basically. Uh, so you can pick it up anywhere and read an interview from people that were involved in Dubai, people who weren't involved in Dubai, a whole range of, of expressions of opinions, uh, letters and notes from some of the players, interesting pieces like um, Adam Collins was kind enough to give us a section of his preparation that he did around commentary for the finals. You don't really get to see that sort of thing. So, And some great photos going way back to to the formation of, of everything and, and where we started. So, look, it's a really great, it's almost a historical piece, so I think it's good, it's good to have that. So we've been working on that very hard. And, uh, again, those games will take place and, uh, you know, the ACT Cricket and Monica Oval have been uh, wonderful to deal with. Uh, so the players will will be at the book launch. They'll play their final T20 game that afternoon. And then we're all going to the, the Black Tie ACT 100-year celebratory dinner that night. So the, the players have to have to bring their best, uh, best formal wear, you know, like we've done in the past when we've been to the opera. So now they've got to go to a black tie dinner after they play. So, you know, for, for some of the players, that will be a first time experience for them ever to be in that sort of setting. And again, that's about what we do. So we've been doing that. We've been in Hong Kong um, working on the pre-preparation for the tournament in April. And I'm happy to say whenever you'd like me to talk about the other piece, let me know and I'll t- I'll tell you what else has been going on. <laughs> yeah, so that talk of the future and expanding and what's coming in the future brings us nicely to a little announcement that means I am going to have to go buy myself some cowboy boots. So, Sean, can you please tell us what Fairbreak is going to be up to next year and the huge news coming out of Fairbreak for 2023? Well, I think uh, what's been going on behind the scenes is I've been spending some time in the United States and meeting with the USA board. I went to the under-19 uh, USA trials in uh, in Los Angeles and met with the ICC, and that's culminated now in them sanctioning a second tournament for us each year, which will be played in the United States in Houston in September 2023. So for the next three years, we will play in Hong Kong in April and uh, the United States in September. So we'll be able to give more opportunity to more players, be able to send more players back to their respective countries with a greater skill level and confidence, which will help their individual countries um, develop. And it will sort of place us in a position that I think I've wanted us to be in where we've got significant We've created significant opportunity in this social impact area. So players now that are playing with us in two tournaments across a year will go home to some of their communities very well remunerated to further their education, to buy a home, to to do things with their family, to do lots of things that would have been not unachievable for them but would have taken them a very, very long time to achieve without the opportunity to play in a fair break tournament. So um, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, it's been a long time in the in the mix. It's been a lot of lot of hard work to to convince people that um, there was value in it. But I 
I'm a firm believer that the, the biggest emerging market for women's cricket in the world is the United States, without a doubt. I think women's cricket in, in America will do what women's soccer's done. I think it'll explode. Uh, it doesn't have any competition. You know, men's cricket is always going to compete with baseball. Uh, women's cricket doesn't have that to compete with. You know, it's being played in 70 colleges now, including Ivy League colleges. Um, just, just by visiting and seeing some of the talent that's available, it's, it's incredible. So it's a, you know, we'll play on either side of the world, two associate nations, um, and we, we get a chance to, to develop more players. And that really is just kind of the beauty of Fairbreak. You're giving that opportunity to double the amount of people almost, you know. Oh, yes, there'll be people that cross over, of course, but you'll get two tournaments yeah. a year is just staggering. Think how many people got that chance in one tournament that lasted just under three weeks. You're now going to have two in different parts of the world. And that's just insane. And it's not just the players. Like you say, it's players, it's coaches, it's physios, it's media people, it's organisation. There are so many people involved in the Fairbreak family, not just the 22 that actually get out on the field for a game. Yeah, and I look, the other thing too is that we, we will retain the integrity of, you know, the teams as much as possible. Well, we will retain the integrity of them. So there will be players that are retained across a couple of tournaments or more, you know, three tournaments or whatever. We haven't really made all of those decisions yet. But the intention is like we always do with a fair break team, like the one that's coming to Canberra to play. There are players that have played with us several times. So they understand the ethos of what we do. They understand how we do things so that new players coming in, you fit in and are made to feel part of that fair break family very quickly. The same thing will happen in the American tournament. We'll have an opportunity to, to invite more players from Canada, from Mexico, where we haven't had a player from, but we know that there are some there, some additional South American players that we'll be able to bring into that fair break tournament in America. But some of the players that you've seen in Dubai and some that you've and in Hong Kong will also be invited to the United States. So we maintain that integrity across the brand and what we do. And, that, and that's very important to do that as well. Um, so there are some players that, um, have not been retained for Hong Kong, but will immediately be invited to the United States because they played in Dubai and they understand the system. It's just an insanely exciting time, I think, for Fairbreak, for you. I don't know how you, you have so much energy. You must be exhausted. You seem to be all over the place, travelling here, there and everywhere. But it is amazing and we see it and we're so looking forward to what next year has to bring for Fairbreak and everything it means to so many people. Last question, what is the ultimate dream? What is the ultimate dream? What is the ultimate dream, the Fairbreak dream? Well, the ultimate dream for me is that um, this whole operation is not driven by some silly old white bloke in Australia. I think that's the ultimate. I think I've, I'm encouraging, you know, Mignon Dupre's and and the Alex Blackwells and the Sana Mears and the other younger women that we're bringing into our organisation to take a hold of this and run with it. I think it's something that I want to see, you know, go on a long time after me and be taken along by, by women like yourself, Georgie, and Alex here. You know, who involve you know, over time involve themselves in what we're doing and actually take ownership over the whole program. I think that's what I want to see happen. Um, 
you know, I don't have a, a an ego around this for myself uh, at all. Um, it's it was never about that. Um, it was always about you know having grown up loving loving the game and 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 having strong female role models around me from a very early age. And it was you know I think I played my I played my first game of cricket against women when I in 1970 when my college side and I was in first form played the Frencham first 11. So, you know, I've had a long history in being interested in all forms of cricket and gender was never an issue for me. So I want to see you know, fair break go on for a long time. I want to see more of the women that I've mentioned take a significant role in in running it and managing it. And, you know, that's that's how I, you know, would like to see it, you know, and, and us to run, you know, two very, very successful tournaments each year and increase our salary cap for the players as we go along. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to round things up. The future is looking so bright for all things Fairbreak and I, for one, am buzzing to see what it brings. I know Alex is buzzing. It might be early in the morning, but this is Alex's buzzing face and <laughs> it's it's so exciting well, Alex, to see what is to come. Alex, go out and bang on the door of a multitude of high-level corporates and brands who want to jump on board and create more opportunity for what we're doing because I might have to really, um, I think that's what's yeah. so important we need these we need these brands to get on board if we want to make this yeah. movement bigger we need people to get on board and that's why we need to share the fairbreak story and we want people to hear it and read the book see what's going on mm. with the tournaments listen to this podcast follow fairbreak and everything all fairbreak everywhere so on that note Sean when and where can we access the book and get our hands on one of those and to all our listeners where can we find you and Fairbreak all over social medias and how can people get involved and help this movement even bigger well I think you can go to any of our social media handles at Fairbreak Global that's the a good place to start there obviously our website fairbreak.net the book I will um, send you details of in terms of how and where you can purchase that but it will be available through and one international distributor anywhere in the world. And uh, that'll be available from the first week of February. I'll make sure that you you guys get an, an advanced copy so you can review it. And yes, it, it's very, very important that we, we continue to uh, get that message out about the broader piece around what we do, especially from the diversity, inclusion, equality and opportunity piece. Georgie, you know that we don't accept money from betting or organisations or gambling. So I think we're probably the only cricket organisation in the world that does that. So that makes funding um, sometimes very difficult for us. But those things are so intrinsically linked with domestic violence and family dislocation, we we just won't go there. You know, our players play in, in recycled plastic clothing. We've repurposed some of the branding from Dubai and shipped it to Hong Kong. Um, and then it goes to a company in America to be turned into shopping bags and pencil cases. Um, so there's a sustainability piece around this because of, you know, major sporting events, what happens to the branding? It goes to landfill. And then, of course, there's the other element, the Deidre McGee element that you saw in terms of the, 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 the women's health research that we're doing in conjunction with each tournament. So Professor McGee will be back in, in Hong Kong in April continuing that work. 
And that was a great piece of work that you saw, Georgie, where I'm a world authority on sports bras now. Ask me anything you like about sports bras and I can tell you. But an interesting fact that you'll read her interview in the book is that uh, of the 54 women that were assessed in Dubai, um, and these remember these women for, were from some of the best resource countries in the world, mine, yours, you know, um, South Africa, uh, United States, only four of those 54 women were wearing the appropriate sports bra, which is a staggering result. And when you consider the number of shoulder injuries there are for women in cricket, uh, it's a preventative piece as well. So it's a, it's a quite uh, staggering result given the players that were there. And that is something we can all read about in the book. When in the book. Beginning of February. So I think that seems like an amazing place to round up today, Sean. Thank you <laughs> so much for joining us on Women's Cricket Chat. It's also just really nice to see your face again. Hi. And thank Thanks, you so Bridget. much for joining us, hearing all things Fair Break. I thought I knew a lot about it, but I have learned a hell of a lot on this podcast and... I can tell Alex has too, and I really hope our listeners engage in it as much as we have. We've both just been sat with our mouths open, just sort of taking it all in. It's amazing what you've done so far and looking at the future of Fairbreak and what it's doing for so many people all over the world. It's just, it's incredible. And you should be so proud of everything so far. And we as big advocates for women's cricket, hence the name of our podcast, are mega fans, aren't we, Alex? Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Very enjoyable. And um, it's a big team of people that, that, uh, that work on this. It's not just me. But, uh, but thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Fabulous. Well, we have absolutely loved having you. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat, on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. If you'd like to give our personal Twitters a follow, then it's at Hannity1194, at Georgia Heath27, at Cassie Coombs98, at Mihika Barshney, and I'm at Alex Jane This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time.